0: So let's pray, we'll dive into this. Father, we do tonight just thank you, God, that we can look to you, that you are our healer, that you are our fortress, that you are, God, our strength. We thank you, Lord, for the refuge that we have in you. And Lord, right now, we desire, God, that your word would be a refuge to us, that it would be a sanctuary. As we sit here in this place that we call, Lord, a sanctuary, we know, Lord, that our real sanctuary is in you. And I pray tonight, that you would just make that very real to us. For any in our midst, God, who are hurting or struggling or ill, we ask, God, that you would heal, that you would touch. And we just give you, Lord, this time tonight. Be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It was Resurrection Sunday. It's the morning that Jesus rose from the dead. And he finds himself... On the road heading towards Emmaus... From Jerusalem, heading down to Emmaus, and there's two guys traveling on that road that Jesus comes up next to, and they didn't recognize him. It might have been because he had, you know, maybe the the hood part of his robe, you know, over him, or maybe just the Lord uh, somewhat kind of blinded their eyes. I don't know, but Jesus comes up, and these guys are discouraged. They're they're walking with their heads down, and they're just really, really, you know, just bummed out. And he comes up to them and basically says to them why do you guys look so sad and they respond by saying are you a stranger are you new around here because obviously you have no idea what just went down and they started telling them about this jesus of nazareth who they had believed they said we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem israel But then they crucified Him, and we watched our hope die when He died there on the cross. And Jesus continued to walk along with them. And as He walked along, He started just kind of talking with them. And it says there that He began to share with them, starting with Moses... And going all the way through the prophets or all the way through the Old Testament, he began to point out the passages that were in the Old Testament that gave indication that the Messiah was going to suffer and that he was going to die. And as he was talking, something was going on radically in their hearts and when they got to the place where they were staying there in Emmaus and he was going to go on, they begged him. They said, don't go on. Come on and eat with us. And it says that when he went in and he sat down at the table and began to break the bread with them. And maybe it was the nail prints that they saw in his hands. I don't know. But all of a sudden their eyes were opened and they realized that it was the risen Lord. They hadn't heard that he had risen and, and, and or they didn't believe it. And they had heard, they they saw him now, and then he he disappeared from them. And they ran back into Jerusalem. They had a slow, dreary walk, but boy, they sprinted back to the, the city and told the disciples, We have seen him. And then they said this Didn't our hearts burn within us as he shared with us the word? Jesus. Showing these guys, starting with Moses going through the prophets, how the Messiah would suffer. There's a quote from the book of Hebrews, and, and it's really directly from Psalm 40, but the reference is speaking of Jesus, and it's Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. It says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But a body, this is Jesus speaking, you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, you have no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. In the volume of the book, Jesus said, it is written of me. And it's true. This book that we hold in our hands, this book that we hold dear to our hearts, the purpose of it, the purpose of the Bible is not to teach us principles, but primarily to point us to a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And like Jesus did with those two guys on the road to Emmaus, starting with Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch, Starting with Moses and going all the way through the prophets, one prophet after another pointing us to Jesus and the fact that the Messiah would suffer. And one prophet who pointed us to Jesus more than any other is Isaiah. His book is layered with one reference after another to Jesus, Now, Isaiah wrote in a a format or a style that that oftentimes his prophecies would kind of have a dual aspect to him in the sense that it would be a near and not yet type of aspect. That some of his prophecies had an immediate application, but they also had a future application. And we see that really clearly here where I want to start tonight, which is in Isaiah chapter 7. So if you turn to Isaiah chapter 7. This is a fascinating prophecy, and I want to set the scene for you. Syria and Israel. Now, just, for, for, just in case you've forgotten, remember Israel, the nation was divided into two parts. Up in the north was Israel, that's what they called it, or Ephraim, it's also referred to. And then down in the south, now Israel or Ephraim consisted of how many tribes? Ten, good. And then down in the south, there was just two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And they, their capital was the city of Jerusalem. And that's where King David was from and, and uh, Solomon. But after Solomon, the, the nation split into, And there's these two nations. So Israel, there's going to be kind of a civil war going on now. The nation of Israel up in the north has joined with Syria. And they're going to come against Judah. And it's during this time that God sends the prophet Isaiah to Jerusalem to King Ahaz with a message that's recorded for us here in Isaiah chapter 7. Let's begin reading in verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that reason the king of Syria, and Pekah, uh, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Serious forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. So what he's saying here is that these two nations are coming against them, and Judah is filled with fear. They're not established. Their hearts are filled with fear and they're like trees blowing in the wind, blowing back and forth. And then verse three says, and then the Lord said to Isaiah, go now to meet Ahaz, you and Shir jessub your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to Fuller's Field. And so the Lord sends Isaiah with his son. His son is gonna be kind of a, a walking object lesson. And this is what the Lord instructs Isaiah to say. He says in verse four, And say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of reason in Syria, and the son of Ramaliah. Now, notice the first thing that the Lord has Isaiah say to these people who were wavering. He says, Take heed and be quiet. Take heed. In other words, listen up and stop talking. That's a good word, isn't it, for us? That's a good word. It's a common, really, word from the Lord for those who are filled with worry and fear is to be still. Because what happens so often when we are filled with worry and fear? We start running our mouths, don't we? We start talking to anybody who will listen about what's going on and what we're frustrated about or what we're afraid about. And I don't know what I'm going to do and what if this happens and what if that happens. And God knows... He knows that we have to quiet our hearts. And sometimes the first road to quieting our hearts is to quiet our mouths. Stop. Stop speaking and just listen. But I also want you to notice that he says, don't be afraid. Why? Because here's what God says, and I love this. He says, they're just smoking firebrands. Now, what was a smoking firebrand? A smoking firebrand, listen, it was a stick that had been in the fire, that was on fire, that had been pulled out, so that now the fire's gone out of it, and it's just smoking. It's just kind of simmering, but the fire is gone out of it. And here's the deal. This is what God is saying. Ahaz, he looked at Israel and Syria, and he saw this terrible threat. These two guys coming against me, these two nations. But God looked at Israel and Syria and saw two stubs. Two just smoking sticks. To the Lord, they were all smoke and no fire. The fire was gone. Ahaz would look at these guys and go, man, they're on fire and I'm in trouble. And God says, no, they're just full of smoke. They're just two smoking sticks. Now, why does God give them that description? It's because God saw what Ahaz didn't. And man, we need to grab a hold of that. Notice verse 5, he says, Because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Ramaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its, in its walls for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass." This is what God is saying. This is why you don't need to be afraid, is because what they are planning against you is not going to happen. It's not going to stand. He continues, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason, and within, listen, 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramaliah's son. What, what the Lord is telling here, Ahaz, the king of Judah, who, who, by the way, was a wicked king. He's telling him in 65 years, these guys are going to cease to exist. And the prophecy was fulfilled by the invasion of the Assyrians into Israel and into Syria but then the Lord issues this exhortation and I love this look at verse a lot of part of verse 9 he says if you will not believe surely you shall not be established if you will not believe you're not going to be established that's a promise that God was giving here and his application to us, but it also has a flip side at, uh, application in this. If you will believe, that's the flip side, that's the contrast. If you're not gonna believe, you're not gonna be established. You're gonna be you know, just blowing all over the place, but if you will believe, you will be established. If you don't believe, you're gonna be tossed all over the place, but if you do believe, you will be established. That's a great word us to consider tonight because god wants us to be established he doesn't want us to be shaken all over the place but catch this guys the key to being established is in believing the word of the lord and acting on it that's where we become established remember what jesus said he told that parable of the two builders right One man who builds his house upon the sand and the other man that builds his house upon the rock. And he says, and when the storm comes, not if it comes, but when it comes. How many of you are going through storms tonight? You know, yeah, we're going through some storms, aren't we? We have storms in our lives. Two-hander over here. You know, yeah, I'm going through, I'm going through storms. I got her feet up and everything, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, we have that, our storms, those times. But he says this, he says, so there's one guy who builds his house upon the sand and the storm comes and because his house was built on the sand, it just wipes it out. There's another guy who builds his house upon the rock and the storm comes and because it's built on the rock, it stands, it withstands the storm and then he, he describes, okay, here's the two builders. The guy who builds his house upon the sand is the one who hears my word but doesn't put it into practice. He doesn't believe it. So he's not established. He doesn't apply it. And that's the guy who builds his house on sand. It's like, oh yeah, I know that, but I'm not applying it. The guy who builds his house on the rock is the one who hears my word and he does it. He puts it into practice and he says, that man, when the storm comes, his house is going to stand, and then he says this, because it was built upon the rock. Because it was built. Isaiah says to Ahaz, believe. If you don't believe, you're not going to be established. The flip side of that is, hey, believe and you will be established. Now, here's how incredible this is, though. As this continues, we see how the Lord just draws so close to Ahaz. Verse 10 says, Moreover, the Lord spoke to, again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself that the Lord your God, of the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. God says, ask for a sign. I... I want you to believe, Ahaz, so ask for a sign that I am with you, that I'm willing to work, and I will show you. Verse 12 says, but Ahaz says, I will not ask for a sign, nor will I test the Lord. Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to ask. And so God says, well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And he gives this prophecy about Messiah. and Here's where we get to Christ. Verse 13, then he said, hear now, O house of David. I want you to underline that or circle that. Highlight it. Whatever you do in your Bible, it's okay. It's good to write in your Bible, just in case you didn't know that. You have a person next to you who doesn't write in their Bible, just write in it for them. I'm just kidding. No, don't do that. But circle that. Make note of that. O house of David, because this is going to give us an indication that this has, remember that there's the immediate, aspect of the prophecy and then the far-reaching aspect of the prophecy, that O house of David is the indication this has far-reaching effects. Uh, He says, Hear, O now, house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now this is one of the most famous prophecies regarding the birth of Jesus the Messiah in all of the Bible. But it also illustrates that that a principle of prophecy, that, that prophecy has both a near fulfillment and also a far fulfillment. Notice in verse 16 what he says, For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. This is the near fulfillment. He's all freaked out about these two kings coming down. And he says, before this child that's going to be born, before this child shall know to refuse evil and choose good. Before this child gets to that point where he's able to understand evil and good, The land that you dread, these kings that you dread, they will be forsaken. Simply put, God would give Ahaz a sign that within a few years, Israel and Syria were going to be crushed. This was a sign, the near sign of the deliverance to Ahaz. Now, many commentators think that this was immediately fulfilled when a young woman who was a virgin in the royal household got married shortly after this conceived of a son and unknowingly named that child Emmanuel and before this boy got to the point where he you know was uh, able to understand good and evil Israel and Syria had been defeated that's the near aspect the far or the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy goes far beyond Ahaz to announce the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And we know that this speaks of Jesus because the Holy Spirit says so through Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, we read, Behold, the virgin shall be with a child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And we know that this, this prophecy or this passage speaks of Jesus because the prophecy is not only addressed to Ahaz, but it's addressed to the whole house of David. And that's why that is in there. That's why he makes reference to that, because that's the indication, hey, this has a broader application than just to Ahaz and notice it says the virgin shall conceive and that that conception would be a sign to the entire house of David that's the far-reaching aspect of it so when Mary conceived who was from the house of David. She was of the lineage of David when she conceived being a virgin and it was well known. Suddenly everybody knew, hey, this prophecy or anybody who had any you know, Bible sense knew that prophecy from Isaiah is being fulfilled right now in our midst. So we see this amazing prophecy given to us. In Isaiah chapter 7. The prophecy continues though into chapter 8. Prophecy of this continuing, this impending invasion now. He's, he's going to move us one step further in the whole process and start talking about the, the invasion that's going to come from the Assyrians. And I want you to look at verse 8. It says, And he will pass through Judah and he will overflow, talking about the Assyrians and Passover, and he will reach up to the neck, and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath, now check this out, of your land, O Emmanuel. Now this refers to back to the Emmanuel that we were just reading of in Isaiah chapter 7. And this message is that the land of the Assyrians are going to that the land that the Assyrians are going to invade doesn't really belong to Judah and it doesn't even belong to Ahaz but it belongs to the Lord God it belongs to the coming Messiah Emmanuel that's the point of Isaiah chapter 8 verse 8 Now as he continues in verses 11 through 15 he says this, to not be afraid of their threats, because the Lord is with you. God is on your side. And then notice what he says here. He gives this great promise in chapter 8, verse 14, when he says, and he's speaking here now of the Messiah. He's speaking of the Lord, and he says that he will be as a sanctuary that notice the he not it he shall be he will be as a sanctuary the lord in other words will be our sacred place the lord will be our place of protection do you know that that god he's he's our refuge he's our sanctuary our sanctuary our safety is in jesus but notice he says also that but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense note that Here's what he's saying, to those who trust in him, the Lord will be as a sanctuary, but for those who don't, he will be as a stone of stumbling and as a rock of offense. That should sound familiar to you, because we have that same idea in the New Testament. And what he's saying here is instead of finding protection from the Lord, they're going to trip over him, falling to destruction. And indeed, many, it says, among them shall stumble, they shall fall and be broken. Now we know that Jesus is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. Let me read to you, and you can follow along on the screen, but let me read to you from First Peter, beginning in chapter 2, verse 6. It says, "...therefore it is also contained in Scripture." Behold, I lay in Zion, he's quoting here from Isaiah, a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also Appointed. And here we see that this passage here in Isaiah chapter 8 has its fulfillment in Jesus. And it's been said that it's better to fall upon the rock, Jesus, and be broken than to have the rock fall upon you and be crushed. The idea is it's better now to stumble upon Jesus... To be humbled and broken and bringing our hearts to Jesus, than to resist Him, and to later be judged by Him. Now as we continue into chapter nine of Isaiah, says, nevertheless, this is so good. I want you to, to see this. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be. Now, the nevertheless is connecting us to what he's talking about here in chapter 8 this coming judgment and, and, and from the Assyrians. And remember, you know, those of you who were here with us the first time, you remember this. Chapters 1 through 39, the theme is what? Condemnation. Or there's a W word, woe. That's the theme, right? So it's all, you know, he's talking about, okay, there's judgment coming, but then he says this, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her, By way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So the gloom is carrying over from chapter 8. The invasion of the Assyrians would bring terrible gloom and despair upon the Jewish people especially the northern regions of the promised land, which was the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in this context, though, the promise of, of Isaiah chapter 9 is all the more precious. It's beautiful because the gloom, he says, will not be upon her who is distressed. And the northern regions of the promised land around the Sea of Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, were the most severely ravaged by the assyrians who invaded from the north but here's the deal and this is what i love about this is the promise though is that this land that which at one time was lightly esteemed it was seen as being well you know what they're not that significant over there we're not even going to try to protect them these people who walked in darkness have seen a great light He's quoting directly from Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, a passage that clearly is is fulfilled in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And this is the beauty of this. Here's this land, lightly esteemed, this land that's kind of like an afterthought. And where does Jesus do the bulk of his ministry? In Galilee. The bulk of His earthly ministry is in this very region. In this region around the Sea of Galilee. In those towns around the Sea of Galilee that were an afterthought. The the hubbub, all the action was in Jerusalem or in Samaria. And here Jesus, He's ministering in this area. That's like an afterthought that's lightly esteemed. It's kind of the hick towns, if you would. And Isaiah, 600 years before Christ would come, said that's exactly the way that it would be. Fulfilling this prophecy. And I love this because oftentimes you and I, we can feel like afterthoughts, can't we? We can think, you know, and I'm not that important, I must not be that important to God, and, and you know, I'm not like so-and-so, and I'm not like this person or that person, and, and and we see a perfect example here of the heart of our Lord that, man, He, there's no afterthoughts. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, it's an amazing passage. Jesus is there um, praying after Uh, a great day of ministry he's in Galilee great day of ministry um, in Capernaum and a lot of healings and so much so that people you know demons are being cast out and um, he gets up you know goes late into the night he goes to bed gets up early in the morning before the sun comes up and he goes to pray goes to seek his father the disciples come running to find him and they're like everybody's looking for you time magazine's here cnn's here you know uh sarah palin's here i mean everybody's here you know uh got a new show right you know but uh, everybody's here they're looking for you and jesus says this it's time to move on it's time to go to the next towns he says and he says for this reason i've come forth for this reason And the idea there, I think G. Campbell Morgan hits the nail on the head when he says, when Jesus says, for this reason, I've come forth that he's speaking of coming forth from this place of prayer that the father said, hey, it's time to move on. But when he says the next towns, it's literally the hick towns is how it's translated there. It's the small towns. It's the small villages. It's this particular area. Now, as we continue in chapter 9, he says this amazing uh, prophecy in verse six that we know so well. We see us at Christmas time. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. Underline that. Word of deity here. The everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over His kingdom, to order it and establish it with just judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And here in the midst of this, the Lord's saying, look, I'm going to send a son. A son, a child is going to be born, he's going to be human, and a son is going to be given, he's going to be my son. As we move into chapter 11, if you turn over there with me, chapter 10 ends with the Lord explaining how he would allow affliction to bring humility in Judah. And then chapter 11 begins that there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, left with the idea that Judah was being chopped down because of its pride. And now the Lord is looking over the stumps of these trees that have been chopped down and he says a branch is going to grow out of one of them, a root that is of the family of Jesse, of the family of David. He's given us a hint. My son who's going to be born... My son who's going to be given, the child who's going to be born, this, my son who's going to be given is going to come from the family of David. And, and indeed, Jesus did, right? He came from a stump of the family of David, the royal house of David. This is 600 years before the birth of Christ. And when Jesus came forth, it was like a new green branch coming up from apparently a dead stump. It looked dead, but here's this brand new, fresh branch coming out. For 600 years, it's like the family of David had seemingly died. No action, no king, and all of a sudden, here comes this branch. This long dead stump, God brings forth life, and the branch that comes forth from it, this apparently dead stump isn't barely alive. It isn't just hanging on. It's full. This branch is full. Notice what he says of it. This branch, he says, that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Note that. He's talking about a person. The spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And his delight is in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears. This branch is going to be full of life, he says. Full of the Spirit of the Lord. And the Messiah that he's describing here has seven, which is the number of fullness and the number of completion, seven aspects of the Spirit of the Lord. Note these. Number one, he has the Spirit of the Lord, meaning not a false spirit or even a spirit of a man. The Spirit of God resting upon him. The Spirit of God in the form of a dove at Jesus' baptism, which was the inauguration of His public ministry, the the, the Holy Spirit descending upon Him in the form of a dove, the Spirit of the Lord being upon Him, resting upon Him. Remember what they said of Jesus? People looked at Jesus and they said, this guy's different. He is of another spirit, and they marveled at his compassion. And they marveled that the common people, the ordinary people, were just drawn to him. He was of another spirit, the spirit of the Lord. Number two, a spirit of wisdom was upon him. Jesus is perfectly wise in all things. Again, we read in the Gospels of how they marveled at his wisdom. Number three, the spirit not just of wisdom, but of understanding is upon him. That Jesus understands all things. He understands us perfectly. Isn't that a a refuge, man? When your wife doesn't understand you or you don't understand her, know this Jesus does. He understands you, He understands her. He's perfectly suited because He understands our struggles to be a sympathetic, we're told in Hebrews chapter 4, high priest. It's interesting, that word understanding in the Hebrew has the idea of a sharp sense of smell. He understands, he really, really gets the smell, you know, is the idea. Because you see, we can dress ourselves all up to look real pretty, right? And then we can just reek underneath. I remember Denise and I, we were going, this is a few years back, with my buddy Ron Krippner over here. And Ron back then had this Volvo and it had leather seats and it was kind of a hot day and his air conditioning wasn't working real good. And we were driving down to, to uh, San Diego. I think we were going to dinner or something. I can't remember what it was. And, and we got there, and man, my back was all wet from just sweating. I sweat. And later on, my wife, you know, she kind of just leans over and she goes, keep your arms down, you stink. <laughs> you know? Now, I was all dressed up. I was looking good, you know, but it was gross. <laughs> and Jesus, He, he understands. And we can't pull any wool over on Him at all. Number four, the spirit of counsel is upon Jesus, that He has perfect counsel to give us at all times. He has both the wisdom and understanding to be that perfect counselor that we need. Number five, not just the spirit of counsel, but the spirit of might is upon him. That he has the power to do what he desires to do. Remember, Jesus in the boat, radical storm, disciples are freaking out. They wake him up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and it gets still. And they're like marveling that he has the power to rebuke the wind and the waves Don't you wish all you surfers that, you know, when you're down the beach, you Lord, eight-foot set, please, you know, kind of a thing. And, you know, he could do that, but uh, he doesn't. Um, But uh, he has that power. And many would help us. Many would help us if they could, but they're powerless, Others are not powerless. They have the means to help us, but they don't have the heart. They don't want to. Jesus has both the love and the might to help us in our need and in our time of trouble. Notice number six, the spirit of knowledge is upon Jesus. He knows everything. He knows our hearts. He knows all the facts. Many times we have made decisions that seem strange or or wrong to others because they didn't have all the knowledge. They didn't have all the facts. Have you ever experienced that? You know, people were like just questioning, well, wait, what the heck were they doing? You know, but they, don't, they didn't have all the facts. They didn't have all the knowledge. Well, so too, Jesus has knowledge that we don't have. So it shouldn't surprise us that sometimes his decisions might seem strange to us, they may not make sense to us that perfect knowledge and then number seven the spirit not just of knowledge but the fear of the lord would be upon him and jesus in his earthly ministry willingly kept himself in a place of submission and respect and honor to his father now i point all that out to us because knowing that this is our lord this is who he is this is the spirit that is upon him shouldn't we run to him Man, shouldn't we be just every chance we have and every need we have running to Him because of who He is? So here's what I want you to see. So these are some of the very encouraging prophecies concerning what the Messiah will be like. 600 years before he was even born. How he would minister. What his character would be. What his kingdom was going to be like. What his power and his person was going to be like. But this is the thing that I love about this. Is that these prophecies come during a part of the book that is full of woes. During a part of the book that is full of a pronouncement of judgment upon sin and the reason why i like that is in the midst of that judgment in the midst of that woe the lord is constantly reminding them that there's hope and the hope isn't in a political party it's not in a program but it's in a person it's in emmanuel god with us and guys no matter how bad things get know this, Emmanuel, God is with us. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I told you before last week that Isaiah writes in his book about the coming of Jesus and he writes about both aspects. And the both aspects are kind of like two mountain peaks, And these two mountain peaks that he writes about the Lord consist, on on the one hand, we see the the mountain peaks of the suffering servant. That's where we come to in chapters 49 through 53. So turn to 49, uh, actually chapter 50 with me. We're going to jump way ahead. And in chapter 50, Isaiah tells how Israel suffers Because it turned its back on God. But then in the midst of that, he says this, in contrast to God's other servant, because Israel was called his servant, his other servant, the Messiah, suffers, but his suffering is to carry out the will of God. Notice verse 6 of chapter 50. He tells us, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and from spitting. It's a reference to Jesus saying, I gave my back. Here's a detail of the crucifixion that we don't have in the Gospels. Jump over to chapter 52. Now we're going to read through this little passage that we spent about six weeks looking at Because we have one of the most vivid descriptions of what was going on at the crucifixion that Isaiah writes. And he writes this, I told you this last week, several, about 300 years before crucifixion was even invented, he writes in such detail about what was going to be taking place. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, and he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, And then it says, but just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. Hebrew scholars translate this to mean this, that he didn't even look like a man anymore as he was hanging there. That's how brutal the beating was. So shall he sprinkle many nations. That would be the purpose of it, that he was going to impact many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him, for what had... Uh, not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Verse 1 of chapter 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant. Jesus in his ministry would have a great tender aspect to it. And as a root out of dry ground. Remember we were just talking about that in, uh, talking about the branch coming out of the, the stub of Jesse. Now notice this. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. There's nothing uh, concerning Christ's outer appearance that that would have, you know, he wasn't, you know, he wouldn't have been on People Magazine's, you know, 50 most beautiful people list, you know, kind of a thing. It's the idea there. He was just kind of normal looking. He's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs, that's the reason, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Remember the Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. And they thought, oh, this guy must have been a bad guy because look what happened to him. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet we opened not, or he opened not his mouth. He was led as a, slam, as, as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is done. Remember, Jesus wouldn't defend himself. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken and they made his grave with the wicked. He was killed between two thieves but with the rich at his death, he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in him, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's a radical verse, isn't it? it Please the Lord to bruise him. Why? Because it would amount to our salvation. He has put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin... And he shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By, By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he has poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And so he lays out here, Isaiah does, one mountain peak here that that he lays out. The Messiah, this is what people didn't get, was going to suffer. But here's the beauty of it. At the end of it, notice what he says in verse uh, one of chapter 54. But sing, O barren. Why? Because through the death of Christ would come life. Through the death of Christ would come to those who are barren, to those who are lost would come salvation. And I said this last week that Isaiah chapter 3, 53 is like a huge rock that God throws into, you know, this lake. And what happens when you put a, a big rock into a lake, you throw it in, what happens? There's ripples, Right. And what happens in the rest of the book from chapters 54 to 66 are the ripples that emanate from chapter 53 that tell us of the broad aspect of the salvation of the Messiah because of His suffering, that it wouldn't just be, it wouldn't just be that people's sins could be forgiven, that they would be saved, but it would have a far-reaching effect in the sense that Not only does it pardon our sins, but the cross pays for the restoration of the planet and the establishing of the new heaven and the new earth. It's all a part of that. Now look at chapter 61. Another awesome passage here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prison doors to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn. The Messiah announces that he's here to heal the damage that sin brings. Sin has done great damage, so there needs to be a great work of redemption. And because sin impoverishes, he says he'll preach good tidings to the poor. And because sin breaks hearts, he's going to heal the brokenhearted. Because sin makes captives, he's going to proclaim liberty, freedom to the captives and the opening of prisons to those who are bound. Because sin oppresses, he will proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And because sin is a crime that must be avenged, he will proclaim the day of the vengeance of our God. Now, most of you know, when Jesus began his earthly ministry, one of the first things he does is he walks into the synagogue And they ask him if he wants to share something. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads from Isaiah 61, this passage. And then he says, today, this passage is fulfilled in your midst. Because that's what he had come to do. But, significantly, Jesus stopped reading before that last sentence. He stopped in the middle of the prophecy because he didn't read to proclaim the day of the vengeance of our God. And the reason is because that has relevance to his second coming. That has relevance to his second coming, not his first coming. So the comma in the year of the Lord and the day of vengeance is a comma that has stood for 2,000 years. And this shows us something about prophecy, how often it can shift gears right in the midst of it, right in the middle, and have this, this, without warning really, this application that is yet future. Because this day of the vengeance of our God is going to happen when Jesus comes back. In Isaiah chapter 63, we have a report from the final battle, the battle for Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And the Lord Jesus is seen coming out of Basra. Basra was the city of Petra near the Dead Sea. And it's there that the Jews in the last days are going to run to escape from the Antichrist. But now here comes Jesus out of Basra. And we read here that his robe is red and and. Jesus tells us why in verse 3. Notice he says, I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled on my garments for the day of vengeance is in my heart. He lays this out. His second coming, he's coming to do business. He's coming to set up a kingdom. He's coming to overthrow Satan and the Antichrist. Notice what it says There in verse 5 of chapter 63, he says, I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold, and therefore my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. That's interesting, isn't it? Because here he's talking about coming to avenge and stand up for the nation of Israel, and he says there's no one to help. And for, man... Since 1948, the United States has been the helper of Israel. But here Isaiah says, in the last days, there's going to be no one to help. And we look at our current administration right now, don't we? And we see how, you know, the tide is changing. The heart is changing. The attitude toward Israel is changing. Guys, we're in the last days. The stage is being set, Jesus said. But here's the great thing. There's no one to stand up for Israel, but they're not going to need it because all they need is Jesus. He comes and he stands up for them. And he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives and he'll liberate the Jews held up at Basra, this remnant that comes through the tribulation and he'll come to Jerusalem and establish his throne on the temple. And Isaiah... Chapter 64 may be the prayer that really prompts the second coming of Christ. It's a prayer of repentance by the Jews who somehow managed to survive the great tribulation and flee to Basra, to flee to Petra, and they cry out for deliverance. Notice it says here in verse 1, Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. And he continues there to say, that the nations may tremble. As you continue reading on. This might be the very prayer that kind of sets the whole thing in motion. Now, in verse 6, the Jews repent and confess. And notice what they say. I think this is very interesting. But we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind. You know, we always throw that out, right? Our our righteousness is like filthy rags. Here's the context. It's in the last days... And the Jews recognizing their Messiah, and that's what they're saying, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. And in the original Hebrew, and I don't mean to gross anybody out here, but it's literally, it's like used minstrel cloths. That's the idea. That is. When they say filthy rags, that's not that's what they're talking about. They're not talking about oily rags or you know, but it's it's like that's the application. It's like, hey, we're not using this again, is the application. That's really interesting because it's telling us we can't save ourselves, our righteousness, our goodness. There's nothing we can do to atone for our sin. Nothing that we can do that makes us worthy before God. That's why we need a Savior. And it wraps up Isaiah 65 and 66 are the prophet's grand finale It's the consummation of their deliverance, and these chapters give us the details into what life is going to be like during that thousand-year reign when Christ comes. And we talked about that in our study last week. We ended with that. But here's what I want you to see as we just wrap it up tonight. Isaiah presents for us. He lays it out, starting at the beginning, a baby that is going to be born, Emmanuel who is coming, a son who's going to be given, But then the scene shifts and suddenly, you know, the government is going to pee upon his shoulder. There's a son coming. There's a Messiah coming. There's a king coming and he's awesome and he's great and he's powerful and he's the best king and he's tender and he's a shepherd, it talks about in chapter 40. Then all of a sudden it shifts to a lamb who's going to be slain. And then it shifts again to a king who's going to reign. And this is the beauty of the book of Isaiah and why I said that it really presents for us the whole picture. It's a Bible in miniature because this is what we see throughout the whole word of God. This picture, man's lost in sin. God's going to send a redeemer. It's going to be his son. And he's going to come along. And he's going to be slain. But he's going to come back and he's going to reign. Glory, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And these are the two mountain peaks. One, a suffering lamb. The other, a conquering king. And in the middle is this valley that we know as the church age. The age we're living in right now. The near for us is this right here. And we see the prophecies unfolding. The not yet is what we just read. Jesus is coming back. And He wants us to believe in what the Word is laid out for us concerning Him and to be established. To be doing His business, being about His business until He comes. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we love You. We thank You, God, for Your Word. and We pray, God, that You would just use it to sustain us. You would use it, Lord, to just... Um, Help us to stand strong and believe and be established. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you, Lord, for allowing him to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.